based on my you know sports competitiveness and i had great coaches that always had us setting goals and in swimming we actually had something called a goal meet at the end of the summer and you earn so many points in practice and if you got a certain number by the end of the summer you were qualified to go on this bus trip to some far-flung location and swim but also have a lot of fun and so i was always goal oriented because i had that carrot sticking out there or in football i was a defensive back and a kicker well i worked in summers lifeguard and during breaks, I would lift weights and do things in the pump room. And then at lunch break, I'd go take a bag of footballs and go kick, you know, by myself. And uh, I just always had that idea that I wanted to make sure that I was prepared for when the moment is at hand. And I would run in the summer at like 10, 1030 at night, because I knew that other people were either sleeping or out partying. And I wanted to make sure I had an edge. And so when the actual games happened, I had a natural sense of confidence because I built that over the summer getting ready. And so those are the kind of things that some people say, well, life just happens to you. And I don't agree. I think life is what you make it. In a corporate world where all employees have great leaders with no egos that create fun cultures where people can do their best work, the employees and companies thrive while doing great things for the customers, themselves, and each other. Well, we know that rarely happens. I'm Jeff Palaccio. I have been a leader for over 40 years for every t-shirt-sized company, from small 16 employees to extra-large over 1 million. Please join me while I interview outstanding leaders that will share stories of great leadership and not so great. It will help you become a better leader while poking fun about all the crazy shit that happens in corporate America. Hi, I'm Joe Deshawn, and welcome to The Corporate Couch with Jeff Palaccio. Today, Jeff is interviewing Mark Mears. Mark is the Chief Growth Officer for Leaf Growth Ventures, LLC a consulting firm inspiring individuals, teams, and organizations to find purpose in fulfilling their true growth potential while making a positive, lasting difference in the world. He has a significant track record of building shareholder value, driving innovation and profitable growth among world-class high-profile brands such as PepsiCo, Pizza Hut, McDonald's, Frito-Lay, JCPenney, NBC Universal and the Cheesecake Factory. Mark has just released his new book titled The Purposeful Growth Revolution, Four Ways to Grow from Leader to Legacy Builder. You can learn more about Mark at markamears.com. Let's listen as Jeff talks to Mark. Mark, I would like to welcome you to the corporate couch. Hey, Jeff, great to be here with you. Yeah, no, very excited. I, uh, you and I recently met uh, through an uh, introduction through uh, another guest that's been on a podcast and a friend of mine, Dave Patrick. So I, uh, I know we had coffee, I believe it was at one of the uh, local hangouts, I think it was Black Dog and Lenexa, but we had a great conversation. You know, it's a, a great one when it goes over the time. Uh, and so I think we went, we had an hour scheduled and we went probably, you know, an hour and a half, hour and 15 minutes. So uh, thank you for being yeah, on I enjoy podcast. talking to you and meeting you and getting acquainted. Yeah. Yeah. So you've had a fascinating career and uh, we'll go, we'll go through it. But uh, yeah, I'd like to start out with just a kind of a icebreaker type question. You know, we've been in a pandemic a little over three years now. 
and um, we've, you know, we've got accustomed to Zoom uh, and uh, doing business and uh, via Zoom calls. So uh, what's the craziest attire, Mark, you've seen on a professional Zoom call or, or lack of attire? <laughs> well, I'll confess there were times where I was uh, maybe in boxer shorts taking a meeting. Okay. Um, oh, I like that self-confession. There well, you go. I'll start. I'll start there. Um, but uh, this company I was with, uh, Salad Works, we had um, uh, you know all sorts of uh, things we were doing to kind of uh, lighten the mood and, and 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 create you know a deeper sense of community, even though we were online. The office was based in Philadelphia, and um, we were all remote, um, and so. We were meeting very frequently and we would have these uh, happy hours at the end of the week. Um, and sometimes they were themed. And so we had people in all all sorts of costumes and get-ups. And we had a Halloween um, party where people were dressed up in Halloween. Uh, so I've seen a lot of uh, you know interesting people and costumes uh, and regalia uh, through the whole uh, the, the, the Zoom demic. <laughs> the Zoom demic, I like that. I hadn't, <laughs> heard, I hadn't heard that one before. Um, yeah, so you grew up in uh, you grew up in Wichita, I believe, right? Yeah, I yes. did. So what was what was uh, as a kid what you what you enjoyed doing? What was what was fun for you? Well, I was in sports. Um, I grew up uh, as a a competitive swimmer. I was in football, um, played basketball, some baseball, um, ran track, and I was just an active uh, child. And, you know, and I hate to say back in those days, you know, we didn't have, uh, you know, video games and smartphones. Uh, we were always outside. Right. And uh, I remember one time, I can't remember what grade I was in, but we had a field behind our house. And, um, I decided it'd be kind of cool to take a hoe that I found in the garage. And for some reason we had this like shot put and I ended up going out there and creating a track and created a mini Olympics. And we had all the kids in the neighborhood come in oh, wow. and we built a high jump pit. We had a uh, long jump. We had running races. We had shot put. Um, we took the, the, you know, the end of uh, a shovel and we created a javelin. So we had a javelin event, uh, but we were really um, into doing creative things like that. And it was uh, just one of those days you just never forget, uh, but it started up, you know, waking up and saying, I got an idea and going out and doing it and then going door to door and getting your friends and having them come over. And they all, uh, they all had a great day. Yeah. I'd love it. Love it. Uh uh, so did you have, what were your aspirations when you, you know, when you said, when I get, when I'm a grown up, I want to be what, what was it? Well, for a while, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer and uh, I went to KU with the idea of ultimately going to law school and you can't major in pre-law. And so I asked around and said, well, what, what kind of major would really prepare me well for being successful in law school and ultimately as a lawyer? And, you know, you hear a lot of this about poli-sci or history or what, what, whatnot. And someone said, you know, Kay has got a really good school of journalism and you're going to be doing a lot of reading and writing and critical thinking and presentations and research as a lawyer. You're going to be doing all those things within the J school. So I did. And I ended up uh, 
doing pretty well. Um, and I had a professor, uh, Dr. Tim Bankston, come alongside me and say, hey, you know, are you sure you really want to be a lawyer? Because I think you're pretty good at this marketing communication thing. And uh, I said, oh, no, I, I'm still, you know, I'm just doing this. to." And then one thing led to another, and it came time to make a decision. And I did some more research, um, people that were in law school, people that were out for a few years, people out for many years, nobody seemed happy. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I, you know, and no one was trying to talk me into it. And so I said, you know, maybe I should listen to my professor. And I started looking into graduate schools and um, there were three I was looking at. Uh, Illinois had a good program. Texas had a good program, but Northwestern had the best in the country. And uh, I ended up getting a master's in what is called integrated marketing communications or what's known today as IMC. Well, I was fortunate to um, be taught at the foot of the master, uh, Professor Don Schultz, who came up with the concept of IMC at Northwestern and ultimately became the name of the program. And it's the name of many programs. As a matter of fact, here uh, in, in Kansas City, KU has a master's in IMC that I've actually taught at. So my world came full circle from wanting to be a lawyer to going into marketing and really uh, uh, diving into marketing and executive management. And um, I love building teams and I love building brands in that order. And so I fell into uh, a pretty good career arc that um, it's not over yet. Yeah, it's very interesting. So uh, um, Don Schultz, legend, uh, you know, he was, you know, founder of IMC. We chatted. I, I I work with Paul Wang, who was on the team there in the early days. I think he may still be there. Paul consulted for us at uh, Sprint PCS when it was a startup. But so you're in college. You're 22. What was the thought process of going right to get your master's in science in IMC? Well, it was awkward because P and G came to town to interview, and. Everyone was signing up. Oh, yeah, we want to work for P&G, but they only take like a certain amount of people. And then they put them in this training program and then they send them all over the country. And I thought, well, I'll just throw my hat in the ring. And uh, mostly these were business school people. But I was one of the few from the J school that got an invite to participate in the interviews. Lo and behold, I got a job. I was one of like five and I had a decision to make. Do I want to sell paper products in Springfield, Missouri? Or do I want to go to grad school at Northwestern? And I said, you know, I'm a competitive son of a gun. I want to go where they teach it the best. And I want to go where the best students are attracted. And I want to do my best. And so I decided that I wasn't going to go the P&G route. Well, I had an internship at what was called Associated Advertising in Wichita, which was the largest agency in Kansas the prior summer. And then got uh, another opportunity the summer after my senior year. And they made me an offer. And then you're talking about, you know, to a young 22 year old, you know, decent amount of money. And I just said, no, I decided I'm going to stick to what I really want to do. And I saw a bigger vision for my future. And I love Wichita, but it's a great place to be from. And I didn't see myself, you know, just living there and working uh, like many of my friends did. And again, it's no diss on what is a wonderful place to live, but I've now had the, the good fortune to have lived in Chicago twice, Dallas twice, Atlanta, LA, and Austin, and now here in Kansas City, and in Wichita, by the way, when I was working for Pizza Hut when it was located there. 
I've been able to travel all over the world and do business with some global companies. And that was more of the vision that I had for myself rather than maybe working on some of the local and regional accounts that uh, they had. Yeah, so very interesting. So I, I think the research says your brains are not fully developed till you're 25 years old, probably later for males. <laughs> so, I'm still waiting for that. <laughs> but I mean, really, at 22, you, you thought about the long game. Like what what in your DNA? Were you always like that? I mean, that's that's very unusual yeah. to think. I mean, P&G, I mean, yeah. people would jump at that job. And it sounds yeah. like the associated advertising, uh, yeah. another, you know, having the money right then versus, you know, another two years, you know, uh, studying and getting another degree. So... Well, it wasn't just my competitive drive. It was also a wonderful mentor uh, and other uh, professors that said, Mark, you can really do something. And they put their faith and trust in me. And I kind of didn't want to let them down too. And, and so when someone invests in you, you know, they're, they're, they're looking for a return, right? If we all invest in uh, the market. We, we, we certainly uh, expect a return. And I think that based on my you know sports competitiveness and i had great coaches that always had us setting goals and in swimming we actually had something called a goal meet at the end of the summer and you earn so many points in practice and if you got a certain number by the end of the summer you were qualified to go on this bus trip to some far flung location and swim but also have a lot of fun and so i was always goal oriented because i had that carrot sticking out there or in football you know, I was a defensive back and a kicker. Well, um, I worked in summers lifeguard and during breaks, I would lift weights and do things in the pump room. And then, you know, lunch break, I'd go take a bag of footballs and go kick, you know, by myself. And uh, I just always had that idea that I wanted to make sure that I was prepared for when the moment is at hand. And I would run in the summer at like 10, 1030 at night because I knew that other people were either sleeping or out partying and I wanted to make sure I had an edge. And so when the actual games happened, I had a natural sense of confidence because I built that over the summer getting ready. And so those are the kind of things that some people say, well, life just happens to you. And I don't agree. I think life is what you make it. And uh, we don't always achieve the goals we set for ourselves, but we can certainly give them uh, the old college try. Yeah, no, it's phenomenal. So you come out with the uh, Master's of Science in Integrated Marketing Communications from Northwestern. How did you secure your first job? Obviously, you have great credentials because not many people get that degree from that university. So how did you uh, move on for to get your first job? Yeah, well, a lot of people in my class who came from all over the country, they were all tops in their college uh, classes, um, a lot were from New York, Chicago, LA, and they kind of wanted to go back to those places. And I, I love Chicago, but man, winter's too cold, too long. Um, and I had this romantic idea about Dallas, you know, being a kid from West Wichita, um, Dallas was like this big city, but not that far away. And it had this kind of bigger than life persona. And maybe that's because the show Dallas was taking place at the time. Right. I ended up being one of a few uh, people that went down to Dallas for my first job was with uh, an agency called Bozell, Jacobs, Kenyon, and Eckhart. And we had the American Airlines account, Pace Picane, Armor Food Company, 
Tone. So we had a lot of really big accounts. And one of them, though, was the Dallas Mavericks. And so it was the, the new NBA team at the time, and we were their agency. And so I got a chance to work on all those accounts that I just mentioned, and uh, even a couple other ones, and got just a tremendous breadth and depth of experience working in account management uh, within an agency that serviced all of these great brands. And so I got a taste of what working with a brand was like. And then one of our clients um, was Armor Food Company, part of ConAgra based in Omaha. They had a, a round of layoffs and so they had an open position. Well, here I am, this young pup just out of grad school. I think I might've made account executive by that time. Um, they said, hey, why don't we help you fill in uh, while you're working on figuring out your, your restructuring. And I'm looking around the room going, yeah, that'd be a great idea. They said, well, we can send Mark. <laughs> what? So I would travel from Dallas to Omaha every week. Uh, I'd leave on a Sunday. I'd work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then Thursday, um, be back in Dallas in the agency. So I got a chance to feel what it was like to be the client. And I liked it. Um, and I liked both sides. Um, I ended up working also on the agency side at Lilo Burnett and DDB, um, working on McDonald's and Frito-Lay businesses, so not, not too shabby. But um, I really felt like leading teams and leading brands and having that accountability. When you're on the agency side, you're an influencer. And that's important. You get paid to do that. But at the end of the day, the buck stops with the CMO or the CEO depending on how the, the, the corporate structure is set out. So being uh, goal-oriented, I really had my eyes set on executive management because I really wanted to make sure that I was in a position to make decisions, to build teams, to build brands, and, and also to do good uh, in the world as a result of my team's efforts. You know, you and I are essentially the same age demographic. And, you know, looking at your LinkedIn, you would be called a job hopper back in the day. We were the first generation that really didn't have a job for life, company for life, you know, not the 30-year gold watch retirement with the pension. So we were the first generation that could move. But, you know, you are you know, you moved a lot. And it was that part of your kind of long game planned because saying... I'm going to be an executive and I'm willing to be called a job hopper possibly, uh, you know. Yeah. Well, I've not been called that, to be honest with you, Jeff, yeah. but I've been uh, definitely a lot of uh, places and done a lot of things. But if you look, they've always been progressively higher roles. So it was always about how do I ultimately reach the, the biggest goal? And, uh, and I, and I've been, every single position from intern to CEO. And so having that breadth and depth of experience in several different industries, most notably uh, retail, restaurants, hospitality, and entertainment are my sweet spot. And I think it comes down to also just loving to serve people. And, and you know, being goal-oriented also does mean sometimes you can get bored um, by what you're doing and want to reach a higher level. And uh, that's how I would couch it. Uh, and in many cases, almost every case, a recruiter came after me and, you know, 
one thing led to another and competitive juices get flowing. Um, and there you have it. Um, maybe I'm the Larry Brown of uh, executive <laughs> management, but I don't know. He did pretty well for himself. Yeah, it, yeah, it wasn't a criticism. I'm just saying. No, I didn't take it. Today's down. world, it's like people. You know, I don't know what the average tenure is at a company, but you know, the uh, it's you know, no one would would blink an eye. Uh, and I well, think there were studies well, and show that uh, CMOs last on average eighteen months. Right. Um, yeah, I've seen. And that. so you know, it's it's you kind of get a grace year and then a show me year. And then oftentimes there's the, the, uh, you know, the, the boom splat effect. If you're really successful one year, well, then you got to lap it the next year. And if you don't, then they're going to bring someone else in. Well, that really didn't happen to me. Um, I'm, I'm proud to say it was more about, you know, me wanting to stretch myself and fly as high as I could. And um, I always wanted to leave everywhere I was better and where I found it. And I'm proud to say that I, I, I feel like I did. Others would say I did. So um, you've worked uh, with some amazing brands and you talked about the retail uh, uh, restaurant industries, but you've worked with Pizza Hut, um, Blimpy's, Cheesecake Factory, Mimi's Cafe, Schlotsky's, Noodles and Company, uh, McDonald's on the when you were at Leo Burnett. Yeah. Uh, so I, I want you to reveal publicly for the first time for you personally, Mark, what is your favorite food out of all the brands you've worked for? Like what, what's that one dish that you would have, ah. you know, every day? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, um, that's, that's tough because, you know, there's over 300 items on the cheesecake factory menu. And ironically, most people have their go-to. Um, and I would say it would, it would definitely be, um, you know, a few different items from the Cheesecake Factory, but I'll tell you my favorite cheesecake, without a doubt, is chocolate tuxedo cream. And uh, it it just is amazing. Um, had uh, it in Kansas City about uh, a month ago with my sister and brother-in-law. We'd gone somewhere else um, to have dinner, but we were in the plaza area. So we decided we were all wanting to have a slice of cheesecake. And I was going to take most of it home because I was full from dinner, but man, I, I finished the whole thing. Uh, that tux, the tuxedo chocolate cream All right. cheesecake is the bomb. I'm telling you. All right. I love that. Again, when we had coffee, I believe I mentioned like the cheesecake factory going there is tough for me because it, it's just too many items on the, on the menu. I want to <laughs> wait till the movie comes out that, you know, that I'll watch it and then pick something to eat. But eh, that's uh, for another discussion. So you again, you work for some great brands, some great companies, uh, you know, Leo Burnett, uh, iconic ad agency. Um, you know, and you, you've written a book about culture and we'll, we're going to get into that, but what, what was some of the companies that had that best culture for you personally that you, you either helped create or, you know, you just, you know, walked into it in one of your, you know, uh, job transitions? Yeah, well, we'll start with Leo Burnett. I think uh, for uh, an ad agency, and they wouldn't call themselves that anymore, although at the time that was what they were, and they had a, a, a saying that they wanted to create the best advertising in the world, bar none. And Leo Burnett was a visionary in so many ways, and he created a culture of excellence. And what's interesting is there was a, an executive team that would, on Fridays, meet 
and review creative, even if it wasn't their account. And they would they would go over it and over it and over it before it would ever get to the client. And that was that that kind of uh, you know living up to the the mission that I saw, at, maybe for the first time. And then at Pizza Hut, when we were owned by PepsiCo, that culture was amazing. You know, we had uh, some the, uh, literally the 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 who's who of people that have become you know C level players all the way up to David Novak, uh, who was longtime chairman and co-founder of Yum Brands, to Steve Reineman, who was a chairman at Pepsi and president of, of Pizza Hut and also um, uh, CEO of Frito-Lay. And then we had a, a bunch of people from MBA programs, from Harvard, Stanford, Virginia, Northwestern, uh, you name it. And it was like iron sharpening iron. It was really competitive, but it was very collegial. And we we had kind of a unstated um, kind of mantra of, you know, work hard, play harder. And then the Cheesecake Factory, I think, kind of blew everything away. Just the, the, the discipline of what it takes to create an empire based on you know, uh, 11 million plus average unit volume restaurants with two to 300 team members and over 300 menu items, almost all made fresh from scratch, but just the, the, the process of, um, you know, not only living up to the mission statement, but also having daily commitments. There were 19 daily commitments. And um, before the doors opened at 11 o'clock, all of the team members in the restaurant would huddle and one member would go through a commitment each day and say what it meant to them and how it would impact them in their work that day. And then the next day and the next day. And when they got to 19, they started over. So they've now been named a best hundred best place to work um, brand, I think for nine years in a row. Um, but being able to soak in um, what it means to not just work hard, but do it in a collaborative, creative, collegial environment where there was such mutual respect. And that stuck with me. And I tried to recreate that in leadership positions that I had uh, so I could pay it backward and help others along their growth journey. Yeah. So let's talk about that a little bit. So, you know, you've had this unbelievable career. You've been, you know, CEO, president, chief marketing officer, chief strategy officer, senior VP of marketing and sales. Just, a, you know, such a great career. But, you know, and you say you love to build teams and mentor teams, uh, build great culture. So what led you down the road of now doing your own thing, your, your consulting practice? And obviously you, you recently wrote a book. So talk about the change in you and what you're doing now. Yeah, Um and I think probably growing up in team sports, you know, I just, I, I feel, and, and I don't call people employees, I call them team members for a reason. Employees sound like, you know, someone who just works at a job to earn a living, whereas a team member has a valuable role they play on a team and they feel like they're part of it. And there's a sense of duty uh, to your teammates, right? So I got to thinking, you know, Years ago, after I was president of a half a billion dollar casual dining firm uh, that was owned by a parent company um, and was recruited from the Cheesecake Factory to take on this brand that had kind of gotten a little long in the tooth, 
um, create a new brand positioning, a new menu, and a new um, kind of what they called uh, a new concept that the parrot could put capital behind because they saw us as a, a potential growth engine. I built a team. Um, we put together a sales plan. Oh, by the way, they were down double digit negative in sales. So we put together a plan to turn the brand around and we put a lot of research into a new brand positioning. We then took and created a new uh, concept to build off of the existing concept without expanding it, but kind of a store within a store concept. Everything we were asked to do, and instead of giving us the capital to achieve our goals, uh, which is what I was recruited to do, uh, they decided to, quote unquote, move in a different direction and put us up for sale. And so we did. Uh, we ended up having a buyer come in. And instead of it being a private equity firm, it was a strategic play. We thought, this is great. This is the parent company we've been looking for. Well, after months of courtship, the deal was made and it closed on a Friday. And on Monday morning, we were supposed to, I was supposed to meet the CEO and start the new planning together. And uh, so we're drinking champagne over the weekend, Monday morning at eight o'clock, I come in uh, and there's the new CEO of the whole enterprise in the conference room. And I walk in and in the corner, there's a woman who I remember from HR. And I said, so Jim, I, and any other you know circumstances, I have reason to be worried, wouldn't I? And he said, hey, you better sit down. At 8.05, I'm out the door. And it was only 8.05 because I had, you know, four minutes of, you know, lifting my jaw off the floor. Huh. And uh, it was, we've decided to move it in a di different direction. I said, what, over the weekend? Uh, so they knew what they were doing. And it was my first real taste of uh, the, the the dark side of, of corporate America. Change happens. New owner comes in, they bring in their own team. They say all the right things until they, you know, sign the deal. And now it's their baby and you're out. And the rest of my team was out not weeks after that. So I got this epiphany uh, the next day. We're in Los Angeles. And this is February 21st, I want to say 2013. And after a fitful night of sleep, as you can imagine, I get up early the next day and I take the dog out back. And February 21st is about the time spring starts to emerge in Southern California, certainly not here in Kansas City. Um, and we had a fig tree in our backyard that was barren from the six or seven weeks of winter we do get. Well, there on the end of one branch was this tiny little green sprig of a leaf just starting to emerge. And in that moment, Jeff, as the sun was coming over the wall and shining on this glistening you know, leaf that had a little bit of moisture from dew, I got this epiphany that leaf is a symbol of growth and rebirth. And I took the dog inside and I went in my office to start banging out a, a treatment for leaf is a symbol of growth and rebirth. Well, I also came up with the fact that it's an acronym. It stands for Leadership, Engagement, Accountability, and Fulfillment. See, when I was in that management role, I was taught the rule of threes. And I felt like if we had three areas of priority or focus, we could turn the business around. We could put a new concept in the ground, new brand positioning, new menu. And, and we did all that through three things. Leadership. We had to have strong leadership up and down the line. Engagement. We needed people engaged with their heart, their head, their hands, and their habits. And then we needed accountability and accountability to ourselves, accountability to our team. And since we were a publicly traded company, accountability to our, our shareholders. Well, I didn't call it Lee, but after all that I just described, here's what was missing. 
fulfillment. We were chasing numbers to chase numbers, setting goals, working our butt off, but you know, having some fun doing it, but still really, you know, sacrificing a lot. I lived up in Valencia. If you know much about Southern California, our offices were in you know, the, the Costa Mesa area, right across the street from John Wayne Airport. So I would literally drive down Sunday night after dinner and putting the kids to bed, work long day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and come back Thursday night after traffic had somewhat abated, but yet before road construction, there's this tiny window. And then I'd work from home Friday and try to be home, you know, and, and present during the weekend. Well, did that for two years. And that wasn't very fulfilling. I was sacrificing, our team was sacrificing, but we were, we were thinking we were doing it for all the right reasons. And it dawned on me that fulfillment is what was missing. And that created an acronym for LEAF, using the three things that I still believed in, but now creating fulfillment. So if you think of uh, leadership as the seed and roots, you have to have a strong root system, just like you have to have strong leadership in a company or it will wither and die. Well, if you have that, you just have a stump. You have to have the trunk, the branches, and the system of nourishment, which is called savia and, and translates uh, in English as lifeblood. Well, what's the lifeblood of any organization? It's people. And so that creates the sense of empowerment that people have their heart, head, hands, and habits engaged. Now that leads to uh, the leaf and the fruit, which is accountability. That fig tree in my backyard only knows how to be a fig tree. Its purpose is to create fig leaves where the source of all growth happens that then bears fig fruit. That's good for sustenance for animals, people, and it also has seeds. We'll talk about that here in a second. But finally, fulfillment represents the ecosystem. It's the soil, it's the sun, it's the rain that causes that photosynthesis in, in the leaf to create the growth energy for that plant to grow and fulfill, much like the culture of an organization allows each individual an opportunity to be the very best they can be. So I put together this framework, this four-circle Venn diagram with leadership, engagement, and accountability, and fulfillment, but all revolving around purposeful growth at the very center. And so that became this idea of uh, a book that I wanted to write. I don't think at the time I really thought I was going to finish it. It was really more of a cathartic hobby. Um, I wanted to see kind of where it would go. But I wrote this purpose statement. I said, if I'm going to you know, make the Kool-Aid, I got to drink it myself. And my purpose statement for myself was, I don't want to just make money and retire. I want to make a difference and inspire. And that means making a difference in the lives of others and inspiring them to want to do likewise. So much like that tree that bears fruit and has seeds, I wanted to scatter seeds to support this revolutionary idea of growth and create for myself a more fulfilling life and work balance, not just work-life balance. Yeah, amazing. I mean, there's so many different ways, I, uh, so many different questions I have for you. But uh, the first one is, so prior to, you know, February 21st, 2013, and this, you know, uh, what I always say shit happens in corporate America and it's just, yeah. it's crazy, but it happens. And, you know, you were with a disingenuous leader mm -hmm. uh, and a bunch of leaders because they obviously knew before Monday yes. <laughs> in February that you were not going to continue, you know, which is amazing and uh, in a bad way, amazing, obviously. Um, 
prior to that, February of 2013, did you have in your mind that you were ever going to write a book? I mean, your journalism made. Oh, no. No. Oh, no. No. And, and I, um, I, I don't fancy myself a writer. It'd be like saying, are, are you a golfer? And I would say, I play golf, but I don't know if I would go to the point where I would yeah. say I'm a golfer. I pay the greens fees. That, that, that denotes a higher level of expertise than, than I have. So no, uh, it was never anything that I wanted to do because here's the deal, Jeff, is I think I spent so much time and energy climbing the ladder and thinking that business success was the barometer of my self-worth. I'm getting a little deep with you here since you've asked, but I think a lot of us do that. And especially as men, we are oftentimes the hunter-gatherers and you and I did grow up at a time when life was pretty linear. You go to school, you get good grades, you get a job, you get promoted, maybe you get married, have a kid or two, you put money away for your college, and then somewhere around age 65, you ride off into the sunset, the gold watch, right? And I saw my dad do that. And so I thought that's just what you did. And so I think it humbled me in many respects to really take stock in what I had, not what I didn't have. And also, I just don't want to take what I've done to my grave. I felt, I feel like it would be criminal to do so, which is why I want to pay it backward. And I say pay it backward because most people say, well, isn't it pay it forward? Well, it could be, except for, for me, when I go to Starbucks and I'm a big Starbucks junkie, I will pave the car behind me. As I'm driving away, I'll say a silent prayer, and I don't know who they are. They don't know who I am, but it, it just wanted wanted to somehow make their day a little better. Well, I find out that they're led through the law of reciprocity oftentimes, which means when someone does something nice for you, you feel compelled to do something nice for somebody else, and oftentimes in greater measure. Well, it creates this kind of string of effect as people are paying it backward because we can't physically pay for the car in front of us. They've already gone. Uh -huh. So my idea of writing this book and then creating speaking opportunities and business consulting, as well as I'm working on individual online e-learning curriculum, is to pay it backward. And how can I live up to that purpose statement that I wrote so many years ago? I don't want to just make money and retire. I want to make a difference and inspire. So at the end of my life, I can look back and say, you know, I made a ton of mistakes, but one thing I feel you know, confident in is I fulfilled the purpose that God put me on this earth to do. And so I want to help other people find their purpose and in, integrate it within their life and work. And while I was always doing some of that, because I've, I've always believed in philanthropy uh, with the Cheesecake Factory, we worked with uh, Feeding America. Um, when I was with Mimi's Cafe, you know, we had you know, several different charities, in, in, including Children's Miracle Network, uh, National Breast Cancer Foundation, um, at Schlotsky's, we worked with uh, JDRF, and, you know, I've worked uh, Noodles with No Kid Hungry. And so giving back has always been important throughout my career to take the resources that we've been given and do more than just make and, and, and sell food. And same thing with uh, Universal Studios Hollywood, when I was senior VP of marketing and sales there. Uh, we had a Discover a Star golf tournament. Um, we raised money for local charities. And we also had a day of giving where everybody got on buses and we went throughout Los Angeles and uh, did what was needed. 
um, and really uh, felt good about being part of a brand that sees communities as one of four stakeholders. Notice I didn't say shareholders, stakeholders, your team members, your guests or customers or clients, your business partners or anybody in your business ecosystem, including shareholders and your communities. And again, if you put that in a model of that four circle Venn diagram, all revolving around purposeful growth, now you're really cooking with gas. Your team members feel better that they work for a company that allows them to fulfill their purpose or give back in some way. And your clients or customers or guests feel good that they are patronizing a brand that gives back in their community. Your business is going to thrive because you're, you're creating uh, that powerful ecosystem where people want to work for you. They want to engage and work harder for you. None of this quiet quitting stuff. And then finally, your communities benefit because of the resources that you put toward needs and fulfill them. So that to me was this vision that was simmering in the back of my head because I'd seen it work. And so I decided I was going to finish this book and help companies understand the power of purpose. And I'm also a senior leader network of a global organization called Conscious Capitalism, Inc. And its mission, it lines very closely with mine, and it is elevating humanity through business. Because I believe businesses have the resources to change the trajectory of some of these paths that we're on, whether it's climate change or sustainability or uh, health and wellness to uh, developing countries or wealth inequality, whatever they may be, governments have not been have not proven effective. Religious organizations and nonprofits can only do so much, but businesses have the power to change the world. And I want to be part of that movement, which I call the Purposeful Growth Revolution. So you have this book in mind now. It's February 2013, and you're having this epiphany. So at that point, when you say you're going to write the book, did you know that you were going to branch off and go on, on your own at this point? Because it, it looked like you still went back to some yeah. senior roles at yeah. Noodles and Company, Slotsky's. Yeah. yeah. What was your thought process at that time? Timing is everything, Jeff. I, you know, like I said, when I started, it was a bit of like a, a cathartic hobby. I had some time on my hands, right? And so I... I'm someone who always likes to feel productive, um, sometimes to my detriment, but um, I, I wanted to feel still vital. And I thought I had an idea that could help. I didn't know where it was going to go. And, and also, let's be honest, uh, I write, there's a chapter in the book, which is get the FUD out. And uh, FUD stands for fear, uncertainty, doubt, and delay. Fear of, is this any good? You know, uh, the uncertainty of giving up a you know, a, a level of status and security for something that I don't know how it's going to turn out. It's a risk reward kind of thing. Doubt, you know, and those background voices in your head that say, nobody knows who you are. You're not some rock star CEO who wants to hear from you. And then all that leads to delay and delay can paralyze people that have ideas. So I would put it off and then come back every now and then and I'd work on it and go, you know, this is pretty good. And I'd I go back to another, you know, C-level job and I come back and say, you know, at some point I feel called to do this and I feel like I've been running from it for about eight or nine years. And so I decided that I was going to just devote, uh, you know, qu quit my last kind of W-2 
job and, and now devote um, the back half of my life and career to this 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 thing. Um, as I'm not an entrepreneur, I'm very much a team corporate America guy. And so getting out so far over my skis has been a little scary. So I had to figure out an anecdote to FUD. And I feel like I did. Faith can overcome fear. Hope can overcome uncertainty. Belief can overcome doubt. And actions, indeed purposeful action, can overcome the paralysis of delay. And that last one's so important. You know, um, just keep moving forward and keep meeting with people like you who have value, um, who I can learn from. Um, God's put people in my path who've helped me at every single stage because I threw my hands up and I said, if this is what you want me to do, this is what I'm going to do, but I need your help. And so lo and behold, uh, last fall, uh, the book launched. And I would say other than maybe getting married and seeing the birth of my twins, having that book arrive at the front door and opening it up and seeing my name on it was one of the proudest moments because I had overcome my FUD and I had done something I set out to do with someone who's always been a goal setting person. This was, this was an elusive one. This was a difficult one. This was a, a, this was a mental and emotional challenge more than it was a physical one that I've been used to succeeding on. And so having that feeling of pride and, and completion was just amazing. And now being able to talk about it on you know great forums like yours, using it as a platform to help others along their growth journey, giving me an opportunity to complete that revolutionary cycle that I wrote uh, in my purpose statement several years ago is very, very fulfilling. Yeah, and we talked about it when we had coffee. You were kind enough to give me a copy. but And I have friends, uh, you know, several friends have written first books um, and, and some multiple. But your book is, you know, it's kind of a weightlifting thing for me. Like I use it <laughs> the dumbbells, but it's, you know, 464 pages. It's deep. I mean, this is a, a phenomenal first work. I mean, it's, you know, you just don't see many first books like this. So, so... I don't know when you exactly you started writing it. I mean, I'm sure it was February 2013, or at least. Yeah, it really was. I've, I've got I've got uh, you know files still that I've kept it's, and along the, the journey to see how it started as just this kind of back of the envelope, you know, vision, and then a layout of a, a table of contents or an outline, and then how it got filled in over over time. Yeah. So what was your, what was the uh, the writing process like for you? Was it just occasional, like weekends or what, you know, because yeah. it obviously was like about eight years, give or take nine years. I mean, not daily writing, obviously, but what was your writing process? Yeah, it was very much um, uh, start, stop. Um, and I have, if I had an idea and I, d I do a lot of my best thinking usually on Saturday mornings, because a lot of pressure during the week and you kind of, you know, let off some of that pressure on Friday night. And then you kind of wake up Saturday and you're, you're refreshed. That's when I would do my to-do list for the following week. Uh, and I just, I, I felt like my mind was fertile. And so I did a lot of writing on Saturday mornings. Um, and then I'm a night owl. So after work, I might uh, do something at night. I was never one of those get up early and write kind of people that say, Oh, I'll just get up at four and start writing. And then I'll go to work and do this and that. I didn't have that level of discipline because I didn't know where it was going to go. Um, and I didn't know if I was really meant or cut out for books. So I love when you say your first book, 
I never thought I would write one, much less have a second one in mind. I really wanted this to be comprehensive. And I, and I looked at the outline and I, you know, worked with a professional editor and believe it or not, we cut out uh, several sections, uh, especially at the end. I wanted it to be almost a, like a playbook. And for whatever season of life you're in, it's not one of those you get on plane and then by the time you're done or you lay and you're done with the book, this is designed to be something that you can refer back to at different seasons of your life. But the content is evergreen. And that was not meant to be a pun, but I guess it kind of is, given the whole natural element of the book. And I also say uh, I've made it uh, the type size bigger and put some air into it because I wanted the reading experience to be enjoyable. And so it's heavy, it's meaty, but it reads faster than it looks. You know, and I have to say, um, you know, when I went on your website and uh, watched your uh, two minute video, I... I got to say, I, I, I don't know if I'm a huge Tony Robbins fan, but I, I, I admire him and, and his work. Uh, but it did, it gave me a little Tony Robbins-esque type video, I thought, in terms of, you know, the purpose and things like that. I mean, was he one of your role models in terms of that or just uh, what he does? No, it's a, it's a high compliment for sure. But no, I, I was never into uh, Tony Robbins. I was never into some of the more, you know, um, the key influencers uh, that are motivational because I always felt like I had my own self-motivation. I didn't need somebody else to fire me up. I was always kind of on fire from an early age. And so there was no role model then, but I think now as I figured this out and I'm starting to get my voice to match the passion that I put in the book, yeah, I'm wanting to use it for speaking opportunities and also you know, consulting and, and e-learning as I mentioned, but really, never had someone I looked up to and, and said, well, that's who I want to be. It was just, how do I be the best Mark Mears I can be? And that's my measuring stick. And I would say that to my daughters when they were old enough to stand up in their crib, I'd say, girls, you know, be the best Brianna, be the best McKenna you can be. And that's all I'll ever ask of you. And that's all God ever asked of you. And so whatever that is, I'm just daily trying to find out who I am and what was I put here for? And when will I know I've fulfilled it? And I ask these questions because they're important. We get one shot at life. You know, I just want to wring it out and, and get all I can out of who, you know, God made me to be. And so each day I try to figure that out. And so this whole idea of the purposeful growth revolution, you know, the word revolution is important to me because leaders lead revolutions. Right. And if you think about revolution and, and there's three different definitions, there's the, the one that we probably all know and, and think about. It's an uprising of the people. Well, in today's day and age, there's been an uprising of the people. Um, it was the Sloan School of Management at MIT that did a study that was published just last year. They surveyed 34 million people who'd left the workforce during COVID and asked them a simple question, why? And the number one answer by over 10 times more than the second most given answer was toxic work environment. And it's as if people said, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. Um, and compensation didn't come up till number 16 on the list. And so the second definition is a dramatic change in the status quo. Well, we were all joking about Zoom a few minutes ago. The pandemic changed our life. And we see throughout history there are catalytic events that create what I call step function change growth opportunities, whether they're disease or famine or war 
or maybe inventions and discoveries. Think about how far we've come with technology just in the last you know, several years since the smartphone's been around. And look at industries that have come and gone, like the cell phone industry. Um, and, and those step function change uh, elements happen because of a catalytic event. Well, COVID created that catalytic event. And now we're in hybrid work environments debating about whether you go back to work or whether you can stay remote or work in a hybrid two days a week, four days a week. In Great Britain, they're testing a four-day work week. And um, I just read that the results are that everybody that participated except for two companies decided to keep it going because they found out their team members were even more productive in the four days they had versus in the five days, right? And then the final definition is a circular object around another. And you think about what's in the center. Uh, it's us. It's our purpose. And so you think about this idea of engagement. There's lack of engagement, quiet quitting, whatever, because people are struggling to find their purpose in both life and work. It's as if, you know, COVID gave us all a bit of a timeout, whether we got sick ourselves or family members, or maybe someone was hospitalized or God forbid, uh, maybe passed away as a result of COVID. And I think that kind of mortality check and the fact that we were sequestered at home and shelter in place, we were fearful because we didn't know what we didn't know. This was not a local thing. This was a global thing. And it was scary times. And I think people said, well, hopefully when it's over, I don't want to go back to who I was, nor do I want to go back to where I work, where I didn't feel a sense of purpose and fulfillment. And so that's really uh, the, the kind of framework for the purposeful growth revolution is looking at that revolution definition in three different ways and applying it directly to the world we live in today and um, wanting to ensure that uh, people are engaged, that they're finding their purpose at work, that those who are leaders, certainly of a certain age, have to unlearn behaviors. The command and control style of management that we used to revere, uh, Jack Welch, you know, Lee Iacocca, Stephen Job, I mean, all these people that we find out later aren't really great people um, to work for, they were command and control and, and, and they got work done. And now you see, you know, Apple's the, probably the highest evaluated, uh, evaluated company in, in the world. But the, the point is people don't want to work for people like that anymore. And they're basically uh, either quitting and staying, or maybe they're resigning and going and, and working somewhere else. They're not just sitting at home on a couch. They just don't want to be in that environment anymore. And I want to provide a playbook for leaders to treat their employees as team members. And I've created this purposeful growth plan, which is a way to take the old annual performance appraisal, which I hate the word appraisal. It sounds like, you know, well, what are we, uh, real estate or cattle? Um, and this whole idea of annual, no one does it well, no one likes it. So I've created this purposeful growth plan that's based on a model uh, and takes the kind of Simon Sinek start with why, but really ask the question, shouldn't we start with who? Who we serve? And then I look at who we serve in four realms of service. And again, back to that four circle Venn diagram of spiritual, relational, professional, and personal. And we're whole people and we need to bring our whole self into the workplace. And that's how we'll ultimately um, achieve our, our, our end goal. So starting with who, then we go to the why. What's your why, your motivation? What, what lights you up? Uh, if I were your leader, I'd want to know that. 
because I'd want to help coach you and help you get to that. And then your how are your your unique gifts. How are you unique? Um, what are your you know ways you can invest your time, your talents, your treasures and your triumphs and travails uh, in a unique way to then ultimately fulfill your what? And that's what you do. But we oftentimes only focus on the what. So when we talk about a performance appraisal, it's about projects and deadlines and metrics and resources. And that's all important because we have to have all that. But what if we started with who? Yeah, interesting. Just to go back to what you said about you know leadership and uh, some iconic uh, CEOs like Jack Welsh and Lee Iacocca. Uh, I was having a conversation over coffee with somebody that I just got introduced to. And we were talking about it. Uh, we're talking about Cerner, um, you know, got built by, you know, Neil Patterson and uh, Cliff Illig. But, you know, and there was that f famous or infamous email that went out to all Cerner employees in the early 2000s. You know, don't leave work. I see people leaving work at 5.06 on a Friday. Why aren't you still work? You know, whatever it was. Yeah. And we were talking about like Neil Patterson, Steve Jobs uh, probably wouldn't, you know, they couldn't they couldn't be in today's environment and, and, and have the same leadership style. Um, yeah. The, the world of work is changing yeah. on purpose. Yes. And those who are clinging to those old uh, models uh, are quickly becoming dinosaurs. Yes. And you're, you're seeing younger leaders that are more empathetic. Uh, there's more of a sense of listening um, and, and there's more uh, autonomy and freedom given um, to team members who really uh, have the, the, the company's best interest at heart, but they just don't want to feel like they're sacrificing um, their, themselves. Again, we're, we're whole people. Why, why should I leave part of myself at home? I want to be able to be all I'm capable of being. And if I had a leader that was really a coach that could then take that, uh, that model of, of, you know, who you serve and, why you do what you do and how are you unique and different um, and how do I get the most out of you? And then I get to the what now I've got a highly motivated team member that I know who they are. I know what drives them. I know what they're really best at. And so often we get, you know, <laughs> we get confused, you know, people say, well, you're not really good at this. So we want to give you this project to round you out. That, like, you know, we're here in Kansas city, home of the chiefs, Right. That'd be like saying, Patrick Mahomes, you're a pretty good quarterback, but you can't tackle for crap. So we're going to put you on the defensive line and help make you a more well-rounded football player. And believe it or not, that happens because people aren't, they're not taking a strength-based approach and putting people, as the old saying goes, all right, people on the bus and in the right seats. And when you do that and you have that deeper listening and you really know what lights somebody up, you're going to get the very most out of them. Now there's going to be high levels of engagement high levels of empowerment that lead to a deeper sense of ownership. And when you have that, usually people don't want to leave that. So you're going to have longer tenure. And so this all works for the benefit of the executive management team if they'll see it that way, that it all is connected and it all should revolve around purpose. Yeah. So Mark, the subtitle of your book is four ways to grow from leader to legacy builder. So what, what is that process and what is the difference? Yeah. Um, and, and the four sections of the book are broken down into kind of seasonal aspects of nature. 
There is cultivating your field for purposeful growth. So the first part of the book sets up the importance of purposeful growth, what it is, how to apply it, how to find your purpose. Uh, the second part is about planting your seeds for purposeful self. And that's really about being more introspective and looking at you personally. And I say there are four dimensions of you. There's who you are, who you think you are, who others see you as being and who you ideally want to become and breaking all that down as well as going into some mindset issues that I mentioned, get the FUD out and turning over a new leaf. And then you go into the, 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 the medius part of the book is growing you forward for purposeful work. And that's where the leaf model comes in. And then finally, it's scattering your seeds for purposeful life. So in each of those four sections, you're looking at it from the lens of a leader. But what I'm trying to you know, impart in the reader is to look at yourself as a legacy builder. And indeed, creating a living legacy, not waiting till you're dead and bequeathing something. But it's important because so many people want to learn how to be a better leader. If you Google the word leader or leadership, together you'll get 1.7 billion with a B hits, okay? And leadership development is a multi-billion dollar business. There's conferences, there's webinars, there's seminars, there's podcasts like yours, there's, you know, newsletters, um, you know, blogs, blogs, you name it, right? Um, everybody seemingly wants to learn how to be a better leader, but no one's really talking about the importance of paying it backward and creating a living legacy for the benefit of others. And so for me, that's the difference. You know, to, leadership um, is about, you know, leading teams and, and um, you know, building brands and creating value. But most of the time it's value for an external stakeholder, right? Whereas legacy is personal. And I have had great mentors through my career and life that invested in me. And I just feel like that's a legacy that I pass on to whomever I lead and want them to say at some point, yeah, I, I learned this from Mark. I manage differently because of that. And I also live my life differently because of that. So the idea of creating a living legacy um, and being a legacy builder, more than just a leader, there is a, a, a pretty, pretty broad distinction that uh, I found and that I write about in the book. Yeah, I, I love that legacy building uh, mentality and the, how it differentiates from being a leader. Um, so in terms of, you know, how you can help organizations and companies, what what does that ideal company look like for you that you can give all your gifts and uh, to that company? What, what does that company look like? Yeah, um, great question, Jeff. Uh, first, I created a, a purposeful growth self-assessment. So if you go to my website, you like you, I think you have done, you take the purposeful growth self-assessment and it takes about five, six minutes. And then when you're done, you can automatically download a customized report with your scores and tips on each of the different four sections of the book. With a, a company, I've created a purposeful growth brand assessment. So now imagine asking that same question and getting uh, executives from a company to provide um, the input of well, what are we doing in each of these key areas? And then me creating the, kind of a, a research uh, report as to what are they doing and their thinking um, is working and what are their team members saying is working or not. So that I can create whether it's workshops, whether it's 
company speeches, whether it's you know additional trainings uh, to help kind of close the gap from what they ideally want to uh, create for their team members and what their team members are saying is working or not working. And so it's really important because so many people say, well, business is all about being, you know, about profit and we've got to get our act together and we got to start making a profit. Then we'll have time for some of that kind of soft skill stuff later. And I'm telling you, it's not, it's not a, or uh, equation, it's purpose and profit. And there's study after study after study that show companies that that have a purpose, that live out their purpose, and they're more profitable than those who don't in the similar uh, industries. So being able to work with a company that sees themselves as growing, but maybe not as much as they'd like to grow, uh, maybe they're seeing high turnover, maybe they're seeing lack of engagement, maybe that they're just not creating the right environment, going back to fulfillment. Fulfillment is that nurturing environment where people have the best chance to to grow into their full potential. And so maybe they need help there, or maybe it's on the leadership end and they're they're struggling to figure out what is their purpose. They need to do a a, a re-imaging of their, their purpose and vision, mission, values, or maybe they're having issues communicating it. Maybe they have it, but they're nice platitudes on a wall and they're not connecting it to their business priorities or they're not communicating it up, down, sideways, like to say from the boardroom to the break room, or maybe there's some issues with accountability. So going in and assessing each of those four areas of leadership, engagement, accountability, and fulfillment, and then putting together a personalized or customized kind of game plan uh, would be uh, my ideal offering to literally any size company in any industry, because this model works regardless of where most of my background's been in hospitality, entertainment, retail, and restaurants. Yeah, I love the culture, company culture I'm obsessed with. Drucker has the famous quote, uh, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And there's even, uh, Seth Godin even has a better one in his, uh, the marketing uh, book, that I need to memorize, but <laughs> it's even better than Drucker's. So Mark, uh, you're fantastic. I um, I can go on and on, but I, I do like to end each episode with, uh, you know, giving advice from great leaders and people like yourself, two groups of people. First, the first group is uh, recent college graduates. So it's uh, June of 2023 here now. So we had a bunch of seniors graduate last month. What advice would you give them on their career journey and getting that first job? Yeah, I, I um, there was a movie years ago called Glengarry Glen Ross and had Jack Lemmon and then Alec Baldwin and some other notable actors. But Alec Baldwin was this kind of New York, you know, sales guy. And this was a bunch of people in, you know, a room making calls to sell real estate. Um, and he had a meeting with uh, them one time and he went up on the uh, dry erase board and he wrote ABC. And he says, it stands for always be closing. So in sales, always be closing. So I just changed the C to curious. So I would say those young people should always be curious. Ask the question behind the question. You know, when I was looking at, you know, a, 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 going into law school, you know, I asked people, I didn't just keep it to myself. I went out and asked and I was curious and I, you know, what should I look out for? How should I prepare? What should I, you know, all those things are so important because 
young people today, I think, are more insular. They're they're not as outgoing. I think they, they've grown up as digital natives, and so they're they're used to spending a lot of time, you know, on their smartphones or, you know, in social media or playing video games. They're not as social, and so I think getting out and talking to people. One thing that I've really um, am proud of is. I did uh, a year of consulting with the KU Alumni Association and we created the Jayhawk Career Network. And uh, it's a great way for students creating a profile, much like you'd see on match.com and alums creating a profile and then bringing them together. Well, if you're you know, a KU grad, and I think this is a competitive advantage, I'm sorry, um, you, you have a chance to reach out to alums all over the world and ask them questions online. Right. And, and, and get kind of, you know, uh, a, a chance to learn well, what would their day be like? How do they how would you prepare? Who, what kind of questions would you ask? And so always be curious, you know, and don't and, and remember, your first job is not going to be your last job. So learn some basic disciplines about having to go to work, um, you know, fulfilling the role that you were asked to play, earning every dollar you're given. And, and when you do that, then keep your mind open to what do you like most about what you're doing? And then maybe there's a second job and a third down the road, but start with that first job, do all the research, put yourself in the best possible place to be successful. Yeah, I love that. Also, I'm going to just give kudos to Alec Baldwin in that Glenn Gary, <laughs> Glenn Ross movie. I think it's the best cameo appearance in a film of all time, maybe uh, tied with uh, Mike Tyson in The Hangover, but... Uh, <laughs> that was good, too. <laughs> but but no acronym there on that one. But anyhow, um, so I love your advice uh, to this second group, So because this is what you're all about. So uh, the, the second group of people I like to help is, hey, you know, you, you're now, from an HR perspective, a leader, you know, you have a manager, you have people reporting to you, you're responsible for them and the strategy and the vision, you know, as they begin their leadership journey, uh, Mark, what advice do you have for them? Yeah, great question. And, and HR is going through just a ton of turmoil right now um, with not only the labor market, but everything they're being asked to do. And then we talk about culture. Well, I'm going to throw a different word at you, Jeff, since you're um, a big um, fan of culture. It's not a bad thing, but I believe that community is a better word. And here's why. A culture may be a place that we feel just a part of. A community is somewhere we feel where we belong. So in this world that we're you know, racing to catch up with diversity, equity, inclusion, let's break that down. Diversity just gets you, you know, in the door. Inclusion just gets you a seat at the table. Equity gives you an equal voice, but if you don't feel like you belong, you're not going to feel comfortable or vulnerable giving your very best for fear of possible recrimination or what if it's stupid or you know whatever it is, because you're just going to be happy uh, to be in the room where it happens, quoting Hamilton, right? So an HR leader needs to figure out how they can create a community, a place where people feel they truly belong versus just checking a box of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Because if someone doesn't feel like they belong, they're going to be out of there pretty quick because they're going to see through the veneer. And so that's a big part. And, and I have an acronym for that that shouldn't shock you, but it's really simple. And it says, all we need is love. And it stands for listen, observe, 
value and empower. You know, a deeper level of listening to your team members creates belonging. You know, observing them and coaching them in real time, not some annual performance appraisal, but the purposeful growth plan that you have maybe monthly check-ins and then valuing them, uh, not just treating them like an employee ID number, but truly valuing the role they play on the team and then empowering them, be the wind beneath the wings and let these people fly. And you're going to create a work environment that is going to be so special, so unique and um, so fulfilling for not only yourself, but everybody, everybody in the, uh, in the organization. Mark, I will say this is one of my most enjoyable uh, podcast interviews. You're a phenomenal person, a, a great leader. And a, oh, thank a, you. A, I'm very excited to see where this uh, goes for you and all the companies and people you'll help throughout. So thank you for being a guest today. Well, I think your listeners can now figure out why we had uh, an hour-long meeting go an hour and a half or whatever. I, I enjoy talking to you, Jeff, and uh, you've had a wonderful career yourself. And so like I said, I, I learned from you. I learned from everybody. And uh, I would just ask that um, if anyone wants to reach out to me on LinkedIn, you can do so. If you want to take the Purposeful Growth Self-Assessment, it's free. You can go to my website at markamears.com. And I'd like to get acquainted. Tremendous. Mark, thanks so much. Have a great rest of your day. Will do. Thanks, Jeff. I so enjoy Mark. I think he's phenomenal. Most first-time authors, uh, you know, their book's about 120, 150 pages, as you know, Joe, having published yep. two books. Um, you know, his is 464 pages, and I'm probably about 20% through it. It's a great book. But besides his intelligence and his unbelievably great career and his leadership philosophy and everything he's putting in that book, the the Purposeful Growth Revolution – Two things struck me. He goes to college, goes to KU, born and raised in Wichita, wants to be a lawyer. That was, and there was no kind of pre-law curriculum. So he, he enrolls in marketing, marketing communications, and he does very well in it. But he still wants to go to law school. And a professor, one of his professors said, here, um, you're really good at this marketing communication. You should think about a career in it. So it got him to think about changing and he did he felt yeah I, i'm gonna take this professor's advice so yeah. he pivoted at 22 and then the other unbelievable thing in college which i think is incredible is he comes out of well he's still in school he gets an offer from procter and gamble png gives him an yeah. offer and it's incredible he turns it down like you know if you're a marketing major and you get an offer from P&G, you take it because it's a, it's the Probably. mecca of consumer packaged goods marketing. Like you're you're going to be well sought sought out. As well as he worked for the biggest ad agency as an intern in Kansas, and he had an offer from them. So he turns out two job offers because he says, "I want to perfect my craft. I'm going to try to get into the Northwestern's uh, master's program in integrated marketing communications taught by Don Schultz, the master who invented IMC, integrated marketing communications, and he goes 
there for two years full time. I, I just thought to have the long game in mind at 22 when your brain's not even fully developed, I thought it was phenomenal. Yes, yeah, that's not what I would have done. And it worked out for him. And guys, you know, God bless him that it worked out. I don't, I don't know if it would have done that for me or not. What, what was your some of well you know I've got to mention one of our favorite movies the Glenn Gary Glenn Ross uh, quote that he had he didn't make a big deal out of it but uh, people that know me and Jeff know that that is one of our favorite movies and we refer to it a lot um, put uh, that coffee <laughs> down uh, there is none better than Alec Baldwin in that role he was born and bred for that role it's amazing yeah one of the best movie cameos of all time uh close second mike tyson in the hangover I that's think. right that's right so that along with the the line that he had put in about uh that, that steve jobs could probably not be a ceo today just just because we're just too i i don't know if we're too fragile or not but that's just not the style steve Jobs's style isn't the style that would be successful today Alec Baldwin could not be a motivational speaker today. <laughs> that, no. that, that would not work. You know, like um, the lines like, I paid more for this watch than you did for your car. You know, things like that. I tell you, if anybody wants to go to YouTube and just look up Alec Baldwin and Glengarry Glenn Ross and just watch that whole thing. If you're not offended by the bad language. Yeah, if you're offended by bad language or you're in a workspace, it's uh, not suitable for work. Yeah, don't don't watch it with the audio turned on at work. But because we're kind of glossing over some of that right now, but uh, but it is an amazing character study and like I said a, a caricature of uh, of an amazing motivational speech. Um, and uh, I'm I'm glad that uh, Mark got to got to remind me of that uh, that great scene in that movie. Joe, so what leadership advice would you want to uh, impart on our great listeners? Our uh, great philosopher today is uh, named Groucho Marx, and one time he said, "Outside of a dog, a book is a man's best friend. Inside of a dog, it's too dark to read." Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Corporate Couch. If you enjoy the podcast, I would love for you to take two minutes out of your day to rate us five stars and write a review. Please join me next week to learn from another great leader sharing their professional journey and insights.